Hey listeners, on May 13th, we invite you to join us and Reed Hoffman for a new virtual strategy session presented in alliance with Capital One Business. You'll hear insights from fellow entrepreneurs about how to be at the forefront of leading change with AI. So go to mastersofscale.com AI strategy right now to register for free. Again, that's mastersofscale.com AI strategy. Looking forward to seeing you there. Those of us in tech, we want society to really believe us that technology will make man better. I think with not just ChatGPT AI, you have to think about the up and the downside. Trust is built by the drop, withdrawn in buckets. If you go back in history, a bad thing that can happen with technology. A few can make more and a lot can make less. And so we're going to have to reskill people to work there. When my father abandoned us, my mother had no education. Instead of us remaining on food stamps and no home, she was like, this can't end this way. I'm going to find a way to get a skill. It convinced me that aptitude and access are two different things. And it can't be more true in this country right now. And I just feel that we can create so much opportunity for so many people. That's former IBM CEO Ginny Rometty. In her new book, Good Power, Ginny argues that all of us have a responsibility to use the influence we have to positively impact others. I'm Bob Safian, former editor of Fast Company, founder of the Flux Group, and host of Masters of Scale Rapid Response. I wanted to talk to Ginny because taking responsibility for society increasingly falls on business leaders yet they often struggle with balancing marketplace dynamics and broader cultural issues. Ginny's roadmap through this terrain isn't without tension. As she puts it, growth and comfort never coexist. Ginny talks about the need for what she calls good tech and both the obligation and the opportunity for businesses to help those being left behind by tech-fueled change. She was at the helm of IBM when they created Watson, the early question-answering AI that beat Jeopardy! champions, and her reflections on what she learned provide insights into our ChatGPT-crazed moment. Ginny's lessons are about building trust, setting guardrails, and making the right decisions for the long term. Hi, listeners. It's Erica Flynn, VP of Alliances and Audience Development at Wait What, the company behind Masters of Scale. My day-to-day consists of nonstop communication, not only with my immediate team, but with our current partner relationships and with incoming leads from possible future partners, which is why I rely on the ease of Grammarly to keep my communication clear and efficient. One confusing email can turn into several confused replies, which can turn into an unexpected meeting which no one wants, needs, or has time for. Having Grammarly on hand as my trusted AI writing partner not only streamlines my extensive to-do list, it minimizes miscommunication by quickly and efficiently synthesizing information and carefully curating tailor-made responses to specific groups. In fact, companies that use Grammarly to communicate can save 19 days per year per employee. Grammarly eases the writing process. It's a writing partner from the blank page to the last word typed before hitting send. Join me and over 70,000 teams who trust Grammarly to work faster, hit their goals, and keep their data secure. Visit Grammarly.com to learn more. That's Grammarly.com. 
I'm Bob Safian. I'm here with Ginny Rometty, longtime CEO of IBM and author of the new book, Good Power. Ginny, thanks for joining us. Bob, thank you. Nice to see you again. So your book, Good Power, it's both a memoir and a call to action for businesses, for business leaders to use their platforms for broader impact than just maximizing dollars. What do you hope the book's impact will be? I hope be in service of a lot of people, not just business leaders, and that they have the power to make some pretty meaningful changes to some tough problems out there. And so, yes, business people, of course, I think might be the first audience, but I'm hoping that anyone, even someone trying to change something personally, will find value in it. And so what is the definition of good power? Good power is the ability to do really hard, meaningful things, but do them in a positive way. And now, what is positive? You run toward tension so that you unite, not divide things. You do it respectfully, though. No fear. And then you celebrate progress, not just perfection. I often associate perfection with polarization of issues right now. And if you're with me or against me, it's really hard to make progress. Good power is more about how things get done than exactly the what. I'm trying to share an idea about how to do things that are hard in a positive way. Now, you said that the first thing was run toward tension. Most of us instinctively avoid tension. I have learned over so many decades that if I would run toward conflict, it was so much more productive, both mentally and emotionally for me, instead of stewing in the problem constantly, if I would just take it head on, I could actually make some progress. Right now, the tensions are so high on things that people get divided when they talk about them. Instead of saying, no, wait, now how can we bridge a difference, which does not mean compromise, by the way, but bridge a difference. And so I would run toward attention in this world. One of the great lessons in the book that growth and comfort never coexist. When I was looking to go to a new job, and all I could think of was all the reasons I couldn't do it. It was like so vivid to me that I would be uncomfortable, but I would not grow that helped me take on riskier and riskier assignments and actually look for things that I didn't know how to do and want to learn something. And it would eventually end for me to believe that when I hire people, the number one thing I would hire for is their willingness to learn. At the outset of the book, you make very clear that the book is not about leadership lessons for women, although you were one of only a handful of women CEOs at major firms. I originally did not include much, if anything, about being a woman. It's just not how I defined my tenure or my, or my whole career, my life. And yet people would ask when I was sort of mid-career and I was presenting somewhere and someone came up after I thought he was going to tell me how brilliant my talk was on financial services regulation. And he said, look, I wish my daughter could have seen you. And in that moment, I realized, okay, look, this is not about me defining myself as a woman, but people cannot be what they cannot see. And it's a responsibility at a certain point to be a role model. So in the book, I come full circle in that I do end up talking a bit about it because I know it does mean something to a lot of people. But I don't believe any of these leadership traits have to do with being a man or woman. Some of the traits may be more what people like psychologists would call more feminine types of traits. But that doesn't mean you're a man or woman leader, right? You mentioned the idea of being a, a role model CEOs today, business leaders are personally more front and center 
for the brand and the business internally, externally called in on social and political issues in a way that they weren't even when you started as a CEO. How do leaders decide what to weigh in on when it comes to these public issues? So I can only tell you how I made those choices. I think all companies are tech companies now. So we should take responsibility for the up and the down side of what technology does in the long run, in the long run. And so I had a framework. I would focus on things that had any impact on trust, meaning did my words and actions always match up and align with my values? How do you introduce new technology? We could talk about chat, GPT, et cetera. I prioritized focusing on inclusion because I do really believe with inclusion, you get better products, better company. And then I felt it was our duty to prepare the world to think that these new technologies would make their life better, not worse. So to prepare society. So whatever your framework is, I think you need one is my only point, because I would say to the workforce, I cannot and will not speak out on everything. So you mentioned stewarding good tech and chat GPT. And I did want to ask you about chat GPT, particularly in the context of you know, IBM, because IBM was a pioneer in AI, right? IBM Watson, in some ways, was ChatGPT before ChatGPT existed, although it, it didn't have that moment of sort of broad consumer use in the same way, right? And I'm curious, you're nodding sort of how you think about ChatGPT and the way we're thinking about AI today and how you thought about it with Watson and what that means in relation to what you call good tech. IBM works on large language models and large language AI, but in a business enterprise context. I had a lot of learnings. I always feel like when you're the early guy, you catch a few arrows <laughs> as the pioneer here. And I always felt the purpose of our AI and the purpose of the new technologies was to augment man. I also said it would change all jobs. Through my journey, at least, I came to conclude, in the end, this would not be a technology issue. This is going to be a people trust issue. So when I think of AI right now, ChatGPT jumps to the forefront because it's got this consumer access to it. Trust is built by the drop, withdrawn in buckets. I've seen a quote from OpenAI CEO, and he says, hey, be careful. Don't use this for anything important yet. Okay, but we're out in the consumer world. There's no real governors on how it's used, right? As an example, people say, well, this will be better for doctors. Just think you could have a, something on your phone. Okay, you're right. Doctors do make some mistakes, depending on the type of disease, five to 20% times they're wrong. But your tolerance when it's technology is very different. I learned the guarantee that you expect that technology for an important problem to be 100% right, not five to 20. Search, maybe you'll tolerate it. But the more important the problem starts moving, uh-uh. So I do think how introduction happens matters. And I We'll see. Is it a good thing that ChatGPT reached a million people in five days or not? It depends. You do need guardrails. I felt like I was talking about AI ethics a decade ago and nobody really cared because once it's started, it's impossible to slow down. But you can have an opinion about usage, about how it's applied, right? When we worked on quantum, but as you know, quantum can break traditional encryption. So we worked on encryption that could not be broke by quantum in parallel. And that's that idea of good tech says, I better pay attention to the positive and the negative, right? I want to ask you to make sure I, I understand this right, because I've noticed that the fact that ChatGPT came from a startup and not from one of the big companies that we know has been spending lots of years and lots of money building AI, is that in part because 
those companies might have been able to release a product like that, but in some ways they had too much at stake for their brand to have it be messy in the release. It's a good question. What is the tolerance, I use that word tolerance, of their users for it being right or wrong, you know, and exact or not? And I do think there is a difference on how people view that by different, you know, a small startup versus a, a large established company, what they expect. And it gets back to that word trust, right? Yeah, everybody loves playing with ChatGPT, but when it becomes part of Bing, suddenly it gets complained about, right? Very different one. And it doesn't matter whether it's Bing, but any big established company like that, that people expect some X from, if all of a sudden that's out of the norm, very different reaction. You know, folks in technology often emphasize the positive potential of these new texts. There's a lot of carnage that comes when dramatic change happens for those folks at the end of the barbell that are not the beneficiaries of that. As a tech leader, did you feel like that makes, you know, it part of my responsibility to try to fill that because we're beneficiaries on one end? I did. If you go back in history and look, the bad thing that can happen with technology, a few can make more and a lot can make less. And so we're going to have to reskill people to work there. I think society gives you a license to operate. And so I felt it was my job then to prepare society to think, hey, if these technologies are out here, I can still make a good living. And it got me down a whole path over the last decade. It is back in early 2012. The people were not yet trained in much of this to be a cyber analyst, as an example. I happened to walk into the next meeting on one corporate social responsibility school, which was a high school, poor neighborhood, worked with a community college. We gave them input on a curriculum, hired the kids for internships, and said, okay, even though in parallel you can get an associate degree at this high school, we might hire you for a few jobs. But 95% of our jobs require a college degree. Lo and behold, these people have great skill, we find. And wow, now lo and behold, 97% are from diverse groups. Then I start to think, holy cow, I think we're onto something. I need the people, and I want a more diverse workforce, and this is a whole new talent pool. Well, this to me eventually turns out to be a movement to this idea of hire for people's skills, not just their degrees. It's not like I'm against a degree. I, I'm a, one of the vice chairs at Northwestern University. I have a degree. But 65% of Americans don't have a college degree. 80% of Black Americans don't have a college degree. And if all the jobs, good jobs— raise a family of four. Good jobs are going to people with college degrees. We have a very big problem in this country. And I would learn over time that almost 75% of jobs have been over-credentialed. It became an easy way for HR to vet through resumes. Just use a college degree. It's an artificial filter. It's an artificial barrier. It's systemic in its nature. It took the better part of five years to relook at every job we had and rewrite it based on a skill. And we went from 95% needing college to start to 50%. And then we started measuring performance because people would think maybe you're dumbing down the workforce, but we weren't. And many go on to then get their degrees, all diverse. It's really become kind of my life's purpose now. Because if you look at it, giving people economic opportunities, probably the best thing you could do as the greatest equalizer out there. And people aren't going to like technology if they think it goes the other direction. Hey, listeners, it's Jodine Dorsey, the VP of live events at Wait What, the company behind Masters of Scale. 
I am constantly tasked with reaching out to teams across a wide spectrum of professions and the vastly different personalities that go with them. Grammarly helps me quickly shift tones to better communicate what I want to say and saves me valuable time in the process. Our upcoming Masters of Scale Summit event features top-tier speakers from CEOs to founders to political leaders. Grammarly's ability to produce on-brand writing helps me properly prepare for each and every thought leader I interact with on stage. It lets me generate the most exciting specialized content for our audience. In fact, teams that use Grammarly report 66% less time spent editing marketing content, which I've seen firsthand with my summit team. Join me and over 70,000 teams who trust Grammarly to work faster, hit their goals, and keep their data secure. Visit Grammarly.com to learn more. That's Grammarly.com. Before the break, we heard IBM's former CEO, Ginny Rometty, talk about what she calls good power and good tech. Now she talks about how in her post-IBM work, she's trying to make corporate America more accountable for broadening workplace opportunity. She also shares insights on what she calls the teeter-totter of managing change, the difference between work-life balance and work flexibility, and the importance of setting your own boundaries in the face of unending demands. I know you're working with 110, the organization you co-founded with Ken Chenault and Ken Frazier. Both of them have been on the show and talked about how after George Floyd's murder, they were talking to each other and anchored on this idea of adding family-sustaining jobs for Black Americans. How did you get involved with them? On the heels of the murder of George Floyd, many people spoke out about what should they do. And Ken and Ken said, we should do what corporate America does best, and we should hire. Okay, so they were the what. I was the how. I was like a bing. We can get a coalition of all the big companies, and we can work on them to help them all move to skills first. I said, guys, I think I know how to make your vision come a reality. And that is what's brought us together. And we enter year three of 110, which stands for 1 million over 10 years. Like any startup, we said we're going to work on Black Americans first, but every barrier is a systemic barrier for any underrepresented group. We've hired about 100,000 people to date. So a lot of the focus is as well on promotion. Like what I learned from my mother, when my father abandoned us, my mother had no education. Instead of us remaining on food stamps and no home, she was like, this can't end this way. I'm going to find a way to get a skill. She never had anything beyond high school, never worked a day outside the home. She's 32 years old, four kids. And she got just enough community college and a little more to get a decent job. And I only tell you that story because it convinced me that aptitude and access are two different things. And it can't be more true in this country right now. So my mom wasn't dumb. She had no access to anything. And I just feel that we can create so much opportunity for so many people. You are optimistic about this. I mean, there are a lot of proclamations and announcements that were made after George Floyd. And there hasn't always been a lot of tangible progress. No, this is tangible. A, they put money in. B, they sign up for the number of hires per year. C, CEO-led and committed, and they made a long-term commitment. And D, we're tracking those hires. And so then once they're hired, it's not like they're an experiment. You have to hire people in cohorts so that the company changes to adapt to them too, in that you end up with this very a wide spectrum of teammates. And to your point, we all felt like, Words don't matter. What is the action and the outcome? 
So in your book, you use this phrase, what must change and what must endure. And some people are impatient about the pace of change, you know, in culture, inside organizations that we move too slow. And other folks are kind of wary that we move too fast, right? That it's chaotic. How do you think about the pace of change in our era and how all of us, leaders, organizations, individuals, should be adapting to it? If you're too patient, then you start to believe excuses of why things can't change, right? So there's this constant teeter-totter that you're constantly trying to get right, the speed of the change, and then the rate at which the organization can really absorb it and make it permanent. One of the things I learned is do think hard about what you are at your soul because be willing to change everything else, but do know what that is. I know when I, in that hurry to change and you know, people are like, become something else, become something else. You start to drift away from what you really are. And that was always a mistake. Now, it doesn't mean what you are doesn't have to be modernized, right? For sure. But how you do it may actually be what you're remembered for. During my tenure as CEO, I would tell the workforce, go faster, go faster. We got to go faster, faster, faster. I'm like, they think that's the only word I know, you know? And, and then like I had this epiphany one day because I could see people were tired they're working so hard, and some of the outcomes weren't changing. And I thought, okay, wait a second, this isn't fair. That would lead me down a whole other path of agile design thinking, net promoters, a lot of things that you never see on the outside but make a difference on the inside. And and I think often in those moments of crisis to change, people forget to look at the how. They just look at the what. I mean, you mentioned your workforce feeling like they were getting tired because you were, you were pushing them too much. We're all tired these days. This challenge about how to manage the workforce is something that we're all struggling with right now between remote work and in-office or lifetime careers versus, you know, tours of duty. Really two important themes right now. I think this idea of how clear is the purpose of the company and do people feel connected to it? And the second one is flexibility. And that is different than work-life balance. It doesn't mean that you're all in the office or all not. I mean, I was very familiar with hybrid. We already had hybrid work. And so I feel that was a benefit because it took years for people to self-govern themselves, to learn how to do that. So for companies that had none of it, I could see why that's a struggle because you can't let everybody decide what to do on any given day. But I think the workforce of the future, if I had to pick two words, it would have been purpose and flexibility. And can you double click for me on like flexibility versus work-life balance? Like what's the difference there? To me, work-life balance says that I want you to be sure that I have all this time, extra time perhaps to do something. And that's a good thing. Flexibility says, no, let me determine, all right, I've got to take these days off or I am going to work in this kind of way when I have to. Or it may even be, yes, I am going to take off because I have an ill parent for X months. Or it might be, I can get my work done partly working with my team this way, not that way. And that's probably a lot more levers than just work-life balance, I think. And so that's, to me, the difference I draw between them. I mean, there's something about the work-life balance that has come to imply sort of more limited ambition in a certain way, that I'm throttling back on my work in order to have my life. I actually think... I had to force myself to learn that. I had to force myself to take time for relationships, 
could I be in the moment? I would be at dinner with my husband and I'd go to the restroom. And of course, I would be on my phone and I didn't realize how much time would go by. And I would come back and he's like, oh yeah, great, super, you've been in your phone. And I'm like, okay, this is really not a quality evening now, is it? And I'm sure many people can identify with that point. I had to learn to draw the boundaries that I needed to make time. It might be my family, but it could be my friends. It could be my coworkers. It could be my colleagues. If I made that quality time, I learned so much and they gave me perspective on big problems that were there that I often, you know, you might not see. And I know you could hope and pray that a company is going to give up a perfect formula to you. But for most of us, it's what we do to ourselves. And I had to learn that I had to draw boundaries. And the only person who could do it was me. You will do better work if you give yourself in your mind some space and some time. And however you define it. It could be working out. It could be doing something with kids. It could be reading. It doesn't matter. It's whatever gives your brain, you know, kind of that little pause back a minute. And I'm like, the irony is the time you give it may be the greatest fuel you'll actually get. I think a lot of people have been struggling with that, particularly over the last three years, as the intensity of the environment has seemed to be sort of unending. It's hard because I always say work leaders, they will suck everything out of you that you'll give. I mean, a company is an innate object. It'll pull. There'll be no end. So I feel like for each of us, we have to then draw those lines ourselves somehow to do it. And as a business person who is overseeing people who may be doing this, like how much responsibility do you have to sort of help that team? I know. Well, that's what I mean. It's because it's easy. You might say, God, I love how hard they all, everyone works, you know? And, but I would say to people, because I say, look, guys, some of how I work, I work because I like it. This is my pleasure. And I would try to go out of my way to say to people, I do not expect you to do the same thing. Some people would say to me, hey, look, you know, when you, when you send me notes every hour of the day on the weekend, it makes me feel I should be on looking at them every hour of the day of the weekend. And I'm like, honestly, that isn't really why I'm sending them. I'm like getting them through my funnel, you know? I didn't actually expect you to have to answer them immediately. I've seen others say, hey, look, I just don't send some people this or that or because I know the pressure I'm putting on them and it's not the pressure I mean to do. So it's both sides, what you can do. And, but there is, as a leader, the things you could do to not like send the wrong signal you're really not trying to send. So from the context that you've seen, what do you think is at stake right now for businesses, for business leaders, for all of us? You know, the biggest thing that I think about is the social fabric of a country, countries, the socioeconomic divide, people feeling that their future will be better. This is the first time I'm not so sure a generation says that their future will be better than their parents' generation, right? Saw things. And so, that tears away at a social fabric, that tears away at democracy, is not a good ending there. We all think about how people can thrive in this next era, which is clearly going to be driven by digital transformation. Now i got to make sure that people can see their place in that world. Well, Ginny, this has been great. Thank you so much for taking the time. I really appreciate it. My pleasure. It's good to catch up with you after all this time, Bob. Thank you. Hi, everyone. It's Jeff Berman, CEO of Wait What and co-host of the Masters of Scale podcast. Like many of you, my to-do list changes by the minute. Whether I'm working with partners or hashing out legal documents or brainstorming with our team, there is never a shortage of tasks that require attention and constant communication. 
Like Masters of Scale co-host Reed Hoffman, I know artificial intelligence is a huge part of our future. And Grammarly is an enterprising leader in AI. With Grammarly, what used to take a few hours only takes a few clicks. It's like having a collaborator for my writing, helping me generate better first drafts and tailoring messages to our specific audiences. It's not only a superior AI tool, it is a safe AI tool. And as a CEO, security is always top of mind. Grammarly has 14 years of experience and a business model that never sells our data. Security has been a priority since day one and continues to be integral to Grammarly's values today. Join me and over 70,000 teams who trust Grammarly to work faster, hit their goals, and keep their data secure. Visit Grammarly.com to learn more. That's Grammarly.com. Masters of Scale Rapid Response is a Wait What original. It's hosted by me, Bob Safian, Masters of Scale's editor-at-large. Our executive producers are June Cohen, Darren Triff, and Jordan McLeod. Our chief content officer is Lori Hoffman. Our producers are Adam Skuse, Catherine Clark-Gray, Alex Morris, Tucker Ligurski, and Chris Gautier. Our music director is Ryan Holliday. Original music and sound design by Eduardo Rivera. Audio editing by Keith J. Nelson, Stephen Davies, and Andrew Nault. Mixing and mastering by Aaron Bastinelli. Special thanks to Emily McManus, Adam Heiner, Colin Howard, Tim Cronin, Kelsey Capitano, Sammy Aputa, Anna Pizzino, Sarah Tartar, Chineme Ozuquena, Alfonso Bravo, Aria Finger, and Saida Sapieva. Visit mastersofscale.com slash rapid response to find the transcript for this episode. And please subscribe to our email newsletter. Become a member of Masters of Scale to get access to a year's worth of courses and content on the Masters of Scale courses app. Find out more at mastersofscale.com slash membership.